chapter 2. We'll be in the section of verses um, <clears throat> 8 to, to 15, really looking only at uh, verses 11 through 15. But we'll go ahead and read Colossians, starting at verse 6, all the way to the end of the chapter. So Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you have been taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceits, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, and which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made together with, made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, indeed, your word, it will forever, forever Establish and it will not fail. Father, we do ask that as we come before your text tonight, your word, Lord, that we would have eyes to see the beauteous glories that are, that are found in Christ and his work. May we simply, looking again at the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation, for our communion with you, help us, O oh Father who simply be captivated by this Christ and walk secure in Him. This we pray in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. Last time, this is a two-parter, and so last time we saw Paul's command to walk secure in Christ because Christ alone is sufficient. In verses 6 to 10, the Colossians were to walk secure because Christ alone is sufficient to bring them into God's presence. Not the worldly doctrines of man's efforts. That's not what gets us before God. 
In contrast to the false teacher's claims, God's presence dwells with us in Christ, the incarnate God. As those united to Christ, the church is God's temple, filled with His glory, radiating Christ's victory over all opposing spiritual forces, such as the spiritual forces behind the false teacher's lies. Again, there are demonic lies today that say we have communion with God through our own efforts, through our own works, rather than resting solely in Christ and His work for us. But hear this tonight, brothers and sisters. This is our main point. We walk secure because Christ alone is sufficient. We walk secure because Christ alone is sufficient. Tonight, Paul continues his exhortation to walk secure because Christ was circumcised, our first point, and because Christ has subdued, our second point. So for our first point, we walk secure because Christ was circumcised. In verses 11 to 12, we see that our spiritual circumcision is rooted in Christ's physical circumcision, meaning His death and our spiritual baptism is rooted in Christ's physical burial and resurrection. We'll get into that. Don't worry. So in verse 10, we saw that Christ is the true temple, right? He is the true temple. God's presence dwells in Him bodily. There were three implications that follow from this beautiful truth. First, the church becomes the temple of God as well. We are filled with Christ's temple glory. It's as verse 10 says, you have been filled in Him, meaning filled in His temple glory. The second implication of Christ being the temple is that Christ is envisioned as this victorious King who has entered, enthroned in His temple. He is the head of all rule and authority. And the third implication comes in verses 11 and 12. As those in Christ, we have been prepared through spiritual circumcision to enter God's temple. Just as under the Old Covenant, males were circumcised at the temple as preparation to enter that said temple. And so in verse 11, the circumcision that the new temple requires is not made by human hands. As in the Old Covenant, the physical act of circumcision, typically done at childbirth by another, granted the recipient, the one who was circumcised, the recipient, the privileges and the blessings of the Old Covenant, such as we see in Genesis 17 and elsewhere alluded to throughout all the Torah, really all the Old Testament. By the removal of physical flesh, circumcision distinguished those in the covenant and from those outside the covenant the Israelite from the Gentile. Yet even in the Old Covenant, circumcision pointed to a far greater spiritual reality. Throughout the Old Testament, God calls Israel to circumcise their hearts. A call to remove their stubborn sins. And a call to true life and devotion to God. In Deuteronomy, God promises Himself to circumcise the hearts of Israel so that they might live, that they may share in the full benefits of covenant relationship with Yahweh. And in our passage tonight, we see a declaration of this promise of spiritual circumcision being fulfilled. God is the one who circumcised the passive Colossians, His passive church in the temple of Christ. In Him you were 
circumcised. This spiritual circumcision is what we call regeneration. It is the removal of the old man, of the old realm of death, to bring us into the new realm of life in Christ. Such as what we see there in Colossians 3, the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new. Regeneration takes place in union with Christ. It is a saving benefit that Christ has secured for His covenant people that the Father chose in Him. Ephesians 1.4 is that we were predestined in Him. And this is rich imagery, and it should not be lost on us. Our Heavenly Father has brought us into the temple of Christ. He has brought us into the temple of Christ and has performed spiritual circumcision upon His covenant children his church. And from this circumcision, we share in all the benefits of Christ. All of the temple benefits. From regeneration flows Christ's saving benefits of justification, adoption, sanctification, and one day glorification. But notice how our spiritual circumcision takes place. It is by the removal of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what in the world does that mean? Using John Murray's language, we could understand it this way. Our spiritual circumcision, our regeneration, was redemption applied, where Christ's circumcision is redemption accomplished. The phrase, the removal of the body of flesh, does not refer to the believer's old spiritual way of life. That's not what it refers to but it refers literally to Christ's physical body. In Colossians 1.22, the same wording of body of flesh refers to Christ's body at the crucifixion. Let's look there. I want to prove it to you. 1.22, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Talking about His physical body. And we should assume rightly that Paul is bringing in this same understanding. This is not referring to the believer's body of flesh, that old principle power that was once there, but it's referring quite literally to Christ's physical body. And also notice that it's also paired with the phrase circumcision of Christ. What we should understand here is that Paul is using the imagery of physical circumcision to describe what Christ accomplished at his death. At his death, Christ circumcised what was old and corruptible, his human body, in order to gain what is new and incorruptible, his new and resurrected body. Likewise, those united to Christ have been spiritually circumcised to the old corruptible realm. Spiritually. We have died to the old realm of death and have entered into the new realm of life, which will culminate just as Christ with new glorified bodies. And this focus on, circ- on His circumcision as death explains the sudden shift to Christ's burial and resurrection in verse 12. Look there with me. Just as believers are circumcised in Christ, or in other words, have died in Christ, they are also buried and raised with Him in baptism. Since circumcision in 12a is spiritual, it's best to understand baptism here as spiritual as well. Water baptism signifies our present spiritual baptism of having died, been buried, and raised in Christ. 
Just as God raised Christ from the dead, we believe God has spiritually resurrected us as well. Brothers and sisters, there are so many, I'm sure that y'all are just teeming in your minds, so many beautiful doctrines and themes that we could explore in just these few verses. We could delve into the doctrine of regeneration even more so. We could try to figure out what's going on here with the doctrine of baptism, which would be a lovely time spent. Or we could further explore the temple themes of Christ and His work. But the old adage is true of this sermon. The text's main point should be our main point. Paul's focus is the mystical union between Christ and His church. In contrast to the physical circumcision that the false teachers demanded, Paul wanted the Colossians to simply rest in the sufficient circumcision of Christ, His his bodily death. Paul wants believers to rest in the bodily death of Christ. By union with Christ's death, God has stripped believers of the old corruptible realm. By union with Christ's resurrection, God has raised us into the realm of spiritual life in which we now enjoy and will one day culminate in our own resurrected bodies. This is what Paul wants us to linger upon. And brothers and sisters, this mystical union does something far more important to our souls. It shows us the love of the Father for His children in Christ. In Scripture, this mystical union is often illustrated with earthly things because we cannot quite grasp it in and of ourselves. The mystical union is explicitly depicted as marriage in Ephesians 5, where the husband's sacrificial love is the basis of the wife's flourishing. And there are certainly other scriptural illustrations we could use to explain this beautiful reality the central core doctrine of the Christian faith. But using the imagery of our passage, our mystical union can be likened to a Hebrew father bringing his infant child into the temple after his circumcision. Just picture it with me. Having been circumcised, the infant child shares in all the privileges of the covenant community and of the temple. With the child in his hand, the father walks around the temple courtyard, pointing to various blessings in the temple, the holy priest, the sacrificial altar, the the basin of cleansing water, and look, the, the holy of holies, where we speak with God and God speaks to us. He's saying this to his infant child as a circumcised heir of the covenant by his own father's hand, the child can only but coo in excitement. All that God has is his. And so it is with us who believe. Our heavenly father has us in the crook of his arm. 
He has removed the old world from us and brought us into the new realm of Christ. Our Father commands our eyes to gaze upon Christ, to gaze upon the sacrificial marks in His hands and His side, to gaze upon the bloody cross behind Him, and to gaze upon that empty tomb, to gaze upon His resurrected, glorified body, to gaze upon the Christ who sits enthroned forever and ever. And by looking to the Son, the Father now turns to you in the crook of His arm and He speaks a word of blessing. He says, you are justified in My sight. You are My adopted Son. You are made holy and perfect and I will bring it to completion. And most beautifully yet, you will be Mine. Dear brother, dear sister, when you are united to Christ, our Heavenly Father looks upon you in the crook of His arm and He speaks to you and He whispers to your tender soul, you are loved in My Son. All that Christ has has been given to us, brothers and sisters. It's once been said that the mystical union that exists between Christ and the believer is the central doctrine of the Christian religion. Brothers and sisters, the only thing we can say to that is, Amen. So then, brothers and sisters, all that Christ is and what He has done becomes a blessing to us from our Father's tongue. We can walk secure because Christ was circumcised unto death. He broke the power of the old corruptible world, removing that sin that cling to us here. In Him, the dominion of the old age is gone. And our Father speaks to us the new blessings in Christ. Oh, what a Father. What a Son. What a Savior. Moving on. To have Christ in His death is far better than being brought back under the law as the false teachers sought. This brings us to our second point. We walk secure because Christ has subdued. In verses 13 to 15, Christ has canceled our guilt and stripped opposing spiritual forces of their accusing powers. Verse 11 mainly focused on benefits, uh, on the benefits of Christ's death, whereas verse 12 briefly introduced the life-giving benefits of His resurrection. Verse 13 continues to focus on the new life we receive in Christ. In verse 13, we see a contrast of our formal spiritual life to our new life in Christ. Formerly, we were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, spiritually. In other words, we were subjugated to the old realm of sin. That is where we were bound. We were constrained in the old man and suffered in the realm of sin and death. However, God has made us alive with Christ. In Christ, we have 
been circumcised. He has circumcised the old man. And we now walk in the realm, his realm, of freedom and life. Our entrance into Christ's realm of life is based in his death that forgives us. Again, the doctrine of mystical union helps us see what Christ has done, that what Christ has done historically becomes what the Father blesses us experientially. We are made alive because God has forgiven our trespasses. Or as verse 14 puts it, we, we are made alive because God canceled the record of guilt that stood against us. All are guilty under God's holy law, and we all have accrued a debt or a penalty to that law. However, God canceled or set aside this penalty accrued to us because the penalty was nailed to the cross. Christ suffered the penalty of our debt under the law. Because the nails pierce Christ's hands, the Father pronounced us clear of debt, and we are forgiven. Through His justifying grace, we now walk in freedom in the realm of life, in the realm of Christ's resurrected life. No longer are we in the old domain of sin under the law's condemning power. Our bondage to sin in the old man was like a straitjacket upon our soul. And the law simply tightened the strengths more and more. But through Christ's work, God has removed the restraints of the law and stripped us from the bondage of the old man. We are new creations in Him. And this visual of bondage helps us to see how verse 15 connects with the rest of the passage. Remember that Paul is dealing with demonic forces who influence the lies of false teachers. We saw that in Colossians 1, starting in verse 16. Let me read that again for us. Verse 16 of chapter 1. For by Him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And we said that those powers, those authorities, were spiritual in nature. And that He has reconciled all things to Him, meaning putting them in their proper place. These demonic forces do not want the church of Christ to know the freedom of life that Jesus has secured for us. These spiritual forces want the church to come under the condemning weight of the law yet again. If they can get you to doubt the sufficiency of Christ, they know that you will be weak and ineffectual. They know that they can corrupt God's worship in the church by having your eyes, your brother and sister, look upon your own obedience rather than the obedience and the sufficiency of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me not mince words. There are demonic power at play. It is a devilishly sinister plan. If we go back to the law for our security... If we go back to the law as the basis of our communion, however we might want to try and fit that in to our system of philosophy or theology, we are doomed. 
by going to the law, it will only produce pride or despair. You get to God because you're good enough or you can't get to God because you recognize correctly that you are not enough. But dear brother and sister, here's the good news. Satan has no power to wield. And he has no guilt to burden. Or to put it in a other way, the emperor has no clothes. As verse 15 says, God has disarmed the ruler and authorities and put them to open shame. God has removed the law's condemning power out from Satan's hand. God has triumphed over his enemies because Christ's death canceled the penalty that stood against us. The law is powerless to condemn. And so, dear brother, dear sister, if God does not condemn us with the law because of our Christ, then surely Satan has no claim to accuse you with the law. If our God will not condemn us with His holy law, how little claim does Satan say to your soul, not good enough. Oh, no, don't listen to those lies. Satan has no power, dear brother and dear sister. He thought he could use God's law to keep us from communing with God. He thought the accusations of the law, the guilt of sin, would keep us into the old realm of sin. But Christ has subdued Satan by taking his power away, by bearing the law's condemnation for his people. It's as the author of Hebrews states, Christ did this so that through death, Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver us, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Our Christ has subdued, and He has led the captives free. So dear brothers and dear sisters, what is it that you fear? What is it that you fear? All of us here are sinners. All of us here deal in sin in some way. Maybe there's some secret sin in your life that you're ashamed of and you can't just bear to mention it or deal with it honestly. Maybe you feel a general malaise over your soul due to some lukewarmness coming in. You call yourself Christian, but you see so much of your sin, rightfully so. You know the call to be holy and crucify that sin. But the more you discern of your own soul, the more distressed you become. You begin to doubt your salvation, which is so very common. You become discouraged that you are not one of God's elect. Your walk with Christ becomes a slow crawl, if not a complete standstill. You may even begin to say that you are not worthy to come before your God. We ought to take a good, honest look at our souls, dear brothers and sisters. We need to discern if we are bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. But if we are not careful, and please hear me here, because this takes a great deal of discernment 
and wisdom in your own spiritual psychology. If we are not careful, we may cut down the garden of God has cultivated in our lives to simply trim down our own weeds. In other words, if we're not careful, we may inadvertently give a little power of the law back to Satan that our God has taken away. And brother and sister, make no mistake, there are always two legions of spiritual forces that are ta- when, uh, when you are taking inventory of your soul. They are watching. You have God in Christ and His ministering angels before you. And you also have Satan and his horde. Satan is striving to get his power back over your soul so that you doubt the goodness of God towards you. He wants you back in the realm of sin and death, constrained in that straitjacket, constrained under the weight of the law. And when you refuse to acknowledge your sin before God, you are not putting it away for no one to see. Satan sees, and he slithers to your ear, and he whispers, not good enough. How could a Christian do that? I thought Christians had self-control. I thought Christians had the spirit to defeat such sins. I thought Christians had good, honorable marriages. I thought Christians had nothing to hide. I thought Christians didn't struggle with anxiety or have family problems. I thought Christians prayed more. I thought Christians read more. You're a Christian? Does Christ really need you? Does He really want you? Who here hasn't heard those lies whispered in our ears? These words bring only fear and no comfort. And they cling to our soul, making us weak and ineffectual to the gospel. And when that happens, dear brothers and dear sisters, Satan wins the day. Brothers and sisters, do not hide your sins from God because Satan will use it to get a foothold. Yes, sin is humiliating, and we must answer God for it. But it is far better to confess to the Lord. Why? Because He is gracious and merciful to sinners. As John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because our Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. Our God does not call us to woeful introspection in our sin. Our God calls us to the outward adoration of our Christ who has paid for our sins. Satan would have us look to ourselves. But our Father would have us gaze upon Christ and His cross. Satan points to the Christian, points the Christian to the law to condemn. But our Father points to the law to show us our need for Jesus. Satan uses the law to accuse and subjugate sinners. But our God uses the cross 
to pardon and free sinners. So dear brother, dear Christian, dear sister, weep over that sin. Yes, mortify it. But do not despair. You have a father who is good to sinners, who is good to his children. You have a Savior who died for that sin. It is by resting in Christ and His work that you walk secure before your Father in heaven. Satan, oh, he is a crafty enemy. Oh, he is crafty. Satan may slither around the walls of your soul, dear brother and sister, speaking words of lies and deceit and destruction. But take heart in Christ. Satan has no power over you. He, by Christ's power and Christ's power alone, will never get to your soul. Why? Because our Christ has subdued him through the power of his cross. He has no power over you. Christ has subdued. So then, in conclusion, we walk secure because Christ's body was circumcised unto death. By union with Him, the old, the old corruptible man has been stripped from us and we have spiritually been resurrected through the resurrection of Christ. And we walk secure because Christ has subdued Satan by taking away His accusing power of the law. God has canceled our debts and pardoned our sins. We walk free in Christ because our Christ is sufficient. So dear brothers, dear friends, whatever lie lingers in your soul to have your eyes gaze upon yourself and have your hope focus upon yourself, your joy focus upon yourself, your love for God Focus upon yourself. Don't listen to it. That is of Satan. But listen to the words of love that come from our Father's lips. Is that in Christ, you are my adopted son, whom I deeply love. You are my adopted daughter, and whom I deeply love. You are a forgiven sinner in my sight, and you will be with me till the very end. That is is our God, brothers and sisters. Let us worship Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how simple it is to look upon ourselves and how easy it is to know that we are forgiven, at least intellectually, but Lord, there's that pool in our souls to listen to the lies of Satan. To go down the downward spiral of introspection to where there is despair. Oh, Father, may you cause us to shirk the old man and put on the new to where we look to Christ and his saving benefits and to know our Father's love for those who are in him. And may we simply plead our simple faith in him his death, His burial, His resurrection that has become ours through that mystical union. O oh, Father, crucify our proud and despairing hearts so that they might long to see You.
We ask this, O oh, Father, in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen.